Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're in a series called Trial and Triumph. We're working our way through Revelation over the next literally several months and just going to have a lot of fun and I think a lot of learning as we do that. How many of you know what a sword drill is? Hands? How many of you know what a sword drill is? Yeah, some of you, many of you probably don't. Depending on your church background, religious background, you may or may not know what that is. Here's what a sword drill is. The sword actually refers to your Bible. Uh, Scripture says that God's word is like a sword. And so the sword refers to the Bible. A sword drill is when you have a race to find a reference within the Bible, i.e. your sword. And so the way that works is the leader, the teacher says, draw your swords. When the teacher says, draw your swords, what that means is you hold your Bible like this. Uh, Now, to be correct, it has to be above your head. Uh, You can't cheat and hold it like this. Like, here's two, like, it's got to be above. That's what it means to draw your sword. You have to hold it by your binding. And if if those of you who brought your hard copy Bibles, we always encourage that, you know, get out your Bible, like, practice this with me. Uh, Draw your swords. Yeah, and then the teacher gives a reference and says, go. And the winner is the first person, once you say go, is to like bring it down and, and find the verse. Does it make sense? So, so should we practice a little bit? All right, those of you who want to be in on this, uh, those of you who want to be in, uh, draw your sword. It's got to be by the binding, like I see the one all the way up in the top of the balcony. You got to make sure you're not cheating up there. Yeah, you're good. Oh, man, you're like, like high. You're awesome. Um, so draw your swords. Here we go. We'll get, get an easy one. Genesis 5... Not, not till I say go. So you guys, the church version of cheating is to do it like this. That's like cheating in church. Or like, you know, okay, guys, stay until I say go. Uh, Genesis 15, 1, go. And when you find it, read the first couple words. Genesis 15, 1. Stand up, first person. Oh, good, awesome. Uh, start reading the first couple words, just so we know that you have it and you're not pretending and cheating. Uh, Awesome. She said, found Genesis 51. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. That really doesn't have really anything to do with our focus this morning, uh, but it's a sword drill. Very good. I, I should have had some kind of award. Got to give her a prize. Man, it's, uh, maybe I'll do that next week. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Hey, h- how about one that's a little bit harder? Okay, draw your swords. Draw your swords. Habakkuk 2.20. Oh, I didn't say go yet. See that? See that? I didn't say go yet. Habakkuk 2.20. How did I, I didn't say go yet? Like you guys are, and we got some, we got some like, we got some aggressive people in this room. Man, if you're online, like, you know, Habakkuk 2.20, go. And again, when you have it, stand up. First person. Go. Awesome. John, great job. Let's give John a hand. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Great. Man, I wish I... Oh, I feel so bad. I don't have prizes. Uh, should we do one more? 
Okay, like draw your swords. Draw your swords. Hezekiah 7, 13, go. And Hezekiah is not a book in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, how fair is that, huh? <laughs> so here's why I bring that up. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, if you know, like, Twitter is sort of the kind of cesspool of social media, I guess you could say. Um, and a, a Twitter user actually got banned from his Twitter account for using violent language. Here's what his violent language was. The offending tweet that got him banned from Twitter was this. He said, I will outsword drill any Christian man. Now, the reason that Twitter banned him was because they were not familiar with the cultural context of a sword drill. They kind of envisioned that being violent language. Apparently, this guy's got real swords, and he's going to actually fight with swords for, with people. And so they actually banned him for that tweet. Later, he got reinstated. But he, they actually banned him for that tweet because it was violent language. They were not familiar with the cultural context of a sword drill that is within sort of the Christian community of the sword being your Bible, and the sword drill is simply who can find a Bible verse faster or the most or the fastest. That highlights exactly the challenge that we often have with Revelation. We are removed geographically, we're removed ethnically, we're removed chronologically. And so as we look at Revelation, We've got to be really careful that we don't make the same mistake that Twitter actually made and banning a guy for violent language simply because he references being the winner of a sword drill with any Christian man. Here's how much revelation relies not only on its own cultural context, but also on the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 404. Guess how many verses scholars estimate have some kind of allusion to the Old Testament? Not necessarily Old Testament quotations, but allusions to the Old Testament. There are 278 allusions to the Old Testament in the 400 verses that are in Revelation. In other words... About three-quarters of the verses in Revelation have some kind of reference back to the Old Testament, and you, you better know your Old Testament well in order to begin to understand Revelation well. Otherwise, again, we'll make the same mistake as Twitter and misunderstand the language that's being communicated. That's why throughout the series, we're going to be diving into Old Testament and Old Testament references. And we really will only be able to mention a couple of them because the text actually has so many of them. Let me just give you one that we overlooked last week or we just bypassed because uh, we didn't have time, but it's really important. Let me just kind of give you one idea of how that works. In the very first verse of Revelation, Revelation 1.1, John actually sets us up on how to understand the book of Revelation by an Old Testament reference that he makes. Here's what he says in Revelation 
The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The little word to show there, wouldn't really say it's an Old Testament quotation, but Daniel in using that word is intentional, or I'm sorry, John in using that word is intentionally using the same word that Daniel uses back in Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel uses that word to introduce the vision given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a vision. He calls on Daniel, and Daniel interprets it for him. And several times, you can check it out if you want, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 38 through 40, or 28 through 30, I'm sorry, and again in verse 45, that same word to show is used of the vision that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel uses in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And so what follows in Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, and it's, it's this image. There's beasts coming out of stuff, and it's all this picture language, which means we better understand how Daniel used that word, because John is borrowing that same word, and he says, here, you're going to need to understand this word in order to properly understand Revelation. Because Revelation is about visions. Revelation is about weird stuff that looks weird. That's exactly the word that was used back in Daniel chapter 2. So just one little illustration of not necessarily a fulfilled prophecy. It's not a direct quote, but it's an allusion to the Old Testament that then informs us how to understand the book of Revelation. Well, this morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I'm going to ask Sharon to come up, and she's going to read that for us. Just a little bit of a look ahead. Uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at different churches in Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, Christmas season, we'll look at Revelation 4 and 5, and then we'll kind of get into the thick of things, Revelation 6 and following, starting in January or such, and uh, we'll kind of keep you informed as we go. Uh, Sharon, if you could read uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, as we did last week, I don't know that we'll do this every week, but why don't we stand? Uh, when we stand, it's sort of symbolic of standing in the presence of the Lord. It's as if he calls us as his servants to stand before him, to do his beckoning. And so as we stand, we're kind of standing symbolic that we're ready to take action. We're ready to receive his word. We're ready to do what we're told. We stand before him as he instructs us. And so, Sharon, if you could read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, feel free to follow along in your Bibles. Listen, uh, however is most helpful to you. No sword drills. This is um, page 1913 in the church Bible in the seat in front of you. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, 
and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angel of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, you can be seated. Again, we're going to kind of go through a bunch of stuff this morning, and once again, it's sometimes hard to balance sort of the idea of explaining things, or at the same time applying things, so we'll kind of have, run that balance as we go throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, we might not cover some things this morning, but we'll get to them next week or in the weeks following. John writes this letter, and I think there's three things that are highlighted that he would have his listeners to learn and for us to learn as well. Uh, three ways to navigate through things, three aspects that should be true of our lives as we go through our days and whatever God brings on our path. Uh, first is faithful endurance, faithful endurance. Here's the way that John starts in verse 9 to read that again. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Just a couple of things before we dive into the heart of it. Notice right away, John says he's on Patmos. We at Southridge often talk about rooting and grounding what Scripture says in its time and place. So John says he's on the island of Patmos. Later on, verse 11, he says, I'm writing on a scroll to the seven churches, to one in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He also mentions that back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. He says, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. First thing to understand when you look at Revelation, this is rooted in a particular time and place. There'll be a map up here on the screens. Uh, the dark part of this map is, has the area of Asia Minor shaded. Uh, that's the area where the churches are. You can see it's north of the Mediterranean Sea. If you remember, back in the spring, we did a series on Elijah. The geographical location in which Elijah's story took place was to the right of the Mediterranean Sea in the land of Palestine itself the land of Jerusalem. And so the capital city of Jerusalem, the land of Palestine, is all the way to the right of the Mediterranean Sea. If you look closely, you can probably see a little bit of the Dead Sea, the Jordan River going up. That's the land of Palestine. And so when you read the Gospels, that's where that all takes place. Revelation is not taking place in that land. 
Instead, revelation is taking place in the region of Asia Minor, well to the west of the land of Palestine, to the north of the Mediterranean Sea, and that area that's darkly shaded. Next slide zooms in a little bit. And uh, there you can see the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is where Rome often banned various political prisoners or various political troublemakers, people they didn't know what to do with. They banned them to Patmos. Uh, maybe we'll kind of dive more deeply into that. It was can be a beautiful place, but not back in that day. It was actually a place of, of kind of punishment and a place where people were secluded off on an island where they couldn't get back to the mainland or contaminate other people with their ideas. So that's where John is writing. He's writing on Patmos. He's writing to those seven churches that are located uh, in the area of Asia Minor. Uh, generally, they're about 50 miles apart. They're real live locations. We're going to be looking at that, at that over the next several weeks as we we talk about each one of those churches. Next slide zeroes in even a little more deeply. Uh, there again, you see the island of Patmos. Then you see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's the context. It's always remember to. It's always important to remember that the Bible takes place in a particular location, in a particular time, in a particular setting. And so John is writing a real letter. He's been banned to the island of Patmos by the Roman government. The Roman government doesn't want him contaminating other people. And he writes this letter that's going to be circulated among those seven churches. And in the beginning of the letter, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what we find is there's actually a snippet directed toward each individual church. Now, let's get into the heart of this. John says, I, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Right away, a couple things jump out at me there. Number one, suffering and kingdom are linked together there. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? Suffering and kingdom are linked together. Not only that, but that word suffering translated other place, or is, is the word that's translated suffering there is actually the word translated other places as the word tribulation. Often the word tribulation comes up pretty prominently when we look at the book of Revelation. There's a pretty prominent mention of that in Revelation chapter 7. Again, we'll get to that in a number of months. But that same word is actually the word that's here. So you could read this, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance. Now, here's where I want to go with this. John is saying, I'm a servant of Jesus, and yet I'm going through suffering. Think about this with me for a second. John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was one of the inner circle. In fact, Mark tells us a little snippet about a conversation that John and his brother James had with Jesus. Now, by the way, it's kind of interesting. John doesn't tell us this in his gospel. He chooses to leave it out, and you'll probably see why. But Mark and Matthew both include it. So Mark tells us the story about the John who wrote Revelation, but he tells us about the story of how John and Jesus and James interacted with each other. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10, 35 through 37. You can write those references down. Look it up later if you'd like. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, this is the same John that wrote Revelation, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They reply. So John and James, his brother James, come to Jesus. They have a question for him. Hey, Jesus, could you do for us whatever we ask? Jesus says, okay, what do you want? Here's what James and his brother John, the John who's writing Revelation, here's what they said. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Here's what's going on in John's mind as he's following Jesus back in the day. John is thinking, man, this Jesus guy claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the rescuer. He claims to be the deliverer. He claims to be the one who's going to bring freedom and release. If we can get close to him, life is going to go well for us. If we can be part of Jesus' inner circle, if we can get tightly connected to him, when Jesus rules and reigns, it's going to go well for us because we'll rule and reign with him. If we can get close to Jesus the king and we're buddies with him, then life is going to go well for us because we're buddies of the king. So they say, Jesus, like, may we sit on your right hand and the other on your left. Let us be right beside you. That's what we envision. Well, John saw Jesus get crucified. He saw him raised from the dead. And now John realizes that the story doesn't quite work that way. Because John himself is experiencing tribulation. John is experiencing hardship. John is understanding that, wow, to be a follower of Jesus isn't necessarily to have life go well. Isn't necessarily to have all the circumstances arranged before you. Isn't necessarily to have everything put in place so everything is smooth. Instead, John is realizing to follow Jesus, actually suffering and hardship comes before reigning. Hardship and tribulation and difficulty comes before reigning. Listen, friends, sometimes I wonder, and we're incredibly blessed to be residents and citizens of this country. We're incredibly blessed with safety and security. But sometimes I wonder if the reason that we can sometimes be not so mature is because we kind of associate following Jesus to be equal to having his blessings right now, to circumstances going favorably toward us. When what you find is in Scripture is that for the norm, followers of Jesus experience tribulation. Followers of Jesus experience hardship. Followers of Jesus experience suffering. That's the norm. Let me give you a couple of other references where that word tribulation is used. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Yet it was, Paul says this, yet it was good for you to share in my troubles, or it could be translated my tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 1.4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials, or you could translate that, tribulations you are enduring. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 
you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe tribulation or severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble or tribulation with the comfort we ourselves receive from God, who comforts us in our troubles or our tribulations. Last one, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings or our tribulation, so also you share in our comfort. From cover to cover in the scripture, and even John himself is saying, I'm a partner with you. I'm your companion because as followers of Jesus, as as followers of one who is called the Christ, we are in tribulation. We're suffering. We're going through hardship. We're going through difficulty. You know, this morning we had some real tribulation when we got here. There was, I think, a pretty major power outage in Clinton uh, on Saturday. Our coffee maker didn't work this morning. It's tribulation. (laughs) Some of our AC units are out. You see, sometimes that's our greatest version of suffering and tribulation. Uh Uh-oh, it's raining on Sunday. Am I going to go through the tribulation of getting wet to gather with God's people? Ah, the coffee isn't so good this morning, or the coffee maker went down. Am I going to go through the tribulation of not having my morning coffee? Now, the AC or the heat isn't quite right. Am I going through the tribulation of being too warm or too cold? Friends, sometimes our tribulations are as shallow as that. Now, I realize in a room like this, some of you are going through difficult things and hardships. My prayer is that God would form you and shape you in that. And here's what tribulation, here's what hardship does in our life. Hardship and tribulation and difficulties help us to see whether or not we're simply trusting God because of his good gifts to us or whether we're simply trusting God as his person. See, troubles and tribulations kind of sort out whether we're following after Jesus because of his good stuff, or we're following after him because he is good. Again, the blessings of God, we receive them as gifts, but they're God's good gifts. Many in John's day would not have favorable circumstances. They were going through trials. They were going through tribulations. They were going through suffering. And suffering, like nothing else, sorts out whether or not you're after God primarily for his stuff or if he is good enough. Are you primarily interested in his blessing? Are you primarily interested in his good gifts that he gives? Or do you have the richness of going through suffering and saying, yes, I'm thankful for God's good gifts, but most of all, I'm thankful that he's good. Most of all, my trust is in him. By the way, isn't it amazing 
that John says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day in the midst of the suffering? I don't know about you, but when I'm in suffering, I'm usually not in the spirit. Uh, 9 o'clock, 10.45 Sunday morning, band's playing, we're singing. Yeah, then I can be in the spirit. Maybe you want to do a little survey at your home. Hey, am I in the spirit when things go poorly around here? (laughs) Are you surrendered, fully given over to God in the worst moments of life? Isn't it amazing That hardship didn't take John out of being in the spirit, but he was actually in the spirit. He was actually given over to the presence of God, even in hardship and even in suffering. May we, as followers of Jesus at Southridge Community Church, may we grow in being in the spirit, even in hardship and suffering. Again, there's a lot to work through. Faithfulness and hardship. Second thing. Worship and humility, another characteristic of followers of Jesus as they go through difficult times, faithfulness and hardship, worship and humility. John says this, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, a couple of things. You already heard earlier on in verse 10, John says that he heard Verse 11, it says, write, what you, write down on a scroll what you see. Verse 12, the verse that we just read, I turned to see the voice, and when I turned, I saw. If you're going to understand Revelation, there's a ton of visual impact. Now, some of you are artists, and you're, you're, you'll get this. If you artistically paint a painting... And someone maybe like me who doesn't necessarily understand fully the wonder and depth and beauty of art, maybe somebody like me comes up to you and says, uh, explain this stroke of the paintbrush. Explain this line to me. Explain why you did that. You're probably going to have a sense of frustration. Why? Because there's something about a piece of art that it, it... The meaning is in the visual impact of it. And as soon as you start dissecting every little point, you begin to lose the focus of the overwhelming impact that the author or the artist intended. Here's the deal with Revelation. You've got to read different parts of the Bible differently. In the Psalms, it's, it's poetry. And so in poetry, often the second line reiterates the first line. And there's this rhythm and concadence of, of poetry and knowing how it works. And to understand this line, you've got to look at this line. It goes back to this line. That's poetry. In the Gospels, it's narrative, historical narrative. And so the Gospel writers give names of times, peoples, and places. Because in ancient days, that's exactly how historical writers validated their history writing. Here's the names and places you can check out. If you look at Paul's writings, the epistles, they're more didactic in nature, which simply means they're teaching in nature. Paul uses complex, rational, philosophical arguments. And so point A leads to point B, point B leads to point C, point C leads to point D. And there's this whole compilation of rational arguments that Paul uses to express what he's teaching. And he, he wants you to get it. He wants you to understand it. Paul is somewhat scholarly in how he approaches it. Revelation is none of those. 
Revelation is pictures. Revelation is here's what you see. Here's what you hear. And so, yes, <coughs> excuse me, we'll be dissecting some things. But Revelation is primarily a picture book of impact. Yes, we'll look at what certain things mean, but we can't miss, miss the overall impact. So here's what John sees. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I, when I saw, I saw seven golden lampstands. Later on, we find out that the lampstands are churches. We're going to get into that over the next several weeks. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. What right away comes up is imagery from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there was the tabernacle. It was the physical dwelling place of God, the tent in which God's presence dwelt. There was a lampstand in there. The, the tabernacle itself was the place of God's presence, but particularly the lampstand in it was never to go out, and it was to symbolize the ongoing presence of God with his people. And so the lampstands are point to the presence of God in this world and his people, the church, shining his light into the world. He's dressed with priestly garments, although the sash across his, his body is primarily actually the garb of a king. So there seems to be some nuances there, both priest and king. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. That comes directly from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says he sees the ancient of days. His hair is white like wool, uh, portraying wisdom understanding, purity of wisdom, purity of discerning and getting it right. His eyes were like blazing fire. Fire pierces. Fire goes through stuff. Fire refines. Fire disintegrates that which is worthless and leaves remaining that which withstands it. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. In other words, they were, they were pure. They didn't burn up. You ever see images of maybe a wildfire goes through an area of, of houses out west? And sometimes you look at that, and all there is is the foundation. Sometimes you actually see a fireplace there. Like it's the only thing standing. All the wood has been consumed, but there's a fireplace standing. It's withstood the test of flame. And so the, it's moral purity, these, these, this burnished bronze, it has withstood the test of fire. It's pure, it's holy, it's genuine, it's true. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It says actually the sound of many waters. This isn't a stream where you take a nap and chat with your friend. The voice of rushing water drowns out everything else else. You can't hear anything else because his voice just takes over everything. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Those are the angels for the churches. We'll get into more of that next week. And coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword, his face like, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Out of his mouth, and remember, this isn't literal. This is, this is a vision. This is Look, you can count the number of times the word like shows up in these verses. John says it's like this. It's not how Jesus is, but it's like this. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. It's double-edged. Some of you have gone through surgery recently. Sharp knives can either take someone's life and kill. Sharp knives can also bring healing. What does a surgeon use a sharp knife for? He actually cuts the surface because the problem is underneath. 
A sharp knife actually allows you to get the core of the issue. If you're a surgeon, the broken bone, whatever's wrong, it might be underneath. And so you cut the surface to bring healing to what's underneath. A sharp double-edged sword. It's a sword that can take life. It can bring destruction on that which is evil, but it can also be used to cut away that which is evil and expose that which is true and good and bring healing. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. In the uh, tabernacle, the, the lampstand needed to be refilled every day with oil so it wouldn't go out. Nobody goes up and fills the sun with fuel. It's there. It's ongoing. His face is like the sun. What does John do? He falls at his feet as though dead. He falls in worship. He falls in recognizing that this person in the vision holds the whole future in his hands. He falls down and he worships the wonder, the greatness, the holiness, the might, the truthfulness of this person of Jesus. And friends, one thing that I pray as we go throughout this series is that we would become more deep worshipers of Jesus. That we'd become more deep worshipers, worshipers in humility, worshipers in obedience. Let me just kind of ask a couple of questions that maybe get to the point of how deep are we in our worship of the person of Jesus? Just kind of listen to these as I go through them. Are we neck deep up to here in worship music, but ankle deep? in true worship? Are we neck deep in feeling inspired, but ankle deep in being humbled? Are we neck deep in feeling energized, but ankle deep in endurance? Are we neck deep in satisfying our physical hunger and appetites, and ankle deep in hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are we neck deep in winning the political arguments, but ankle deep in being peacemakers? Are we neck deep in being rich toward ourselves, but ankle deep in being rich toward God? Are we neck deep in feeling exhilarated, but ankle deep in perseverance? Are we neck deep in being circumstantially blessed, but ankle deep in being spiritually blessed? Are we neck deep in the euphoria of financial prosperity, but neck deep in mourning the devastation caused by sin? Are we neck deep in finding our lives, but ankle deep in losing our lives for Christ's sake? See, the deeper we worship, the deeper, more deeply we become like Christ. My point in reading those things is not for us to beat ourselves up, or to feel guilty. Because the solution to all of that stuff, and believe me, I read my name in there. I'm ankle deep in lots of stuff. The solution is not, man, Nathan, you've got to do better. Come on, Southwards, let's do better. That's not the purpose. The solution is, let's worship more deeply. Let's see Jesus more clearly. Let's see his beauty, his goodness, with crystal clarity. 
We have tons of God's good gifts. Do we really worship the giver? Or are we just grateful recipients of the gifts? If you take the gifts away, is Jesus really enough? May we become more deeply worshiping people who see Jesus with greater clarity, even as John saw him. Lastly, just confidence and victory, and we'll get into this in future weeks. When I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, or the realm of the dead. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will soon take place later. We'll probably get to that verse in the future. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the churches, seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John is writing this letter to those seven churches scattered in Asia Minor, saying, be faithful in endurance. Tribulation and suffering is actually part of what it means to follow Jesus. Don't be thrown off by it. Worship in humility, because this vision of Jesus is real, it's true, it's overwhelming, it's powerful. And lastly, he says, be confident in victory. I am the first, I'm the last. I was dead, and now I'm alive forever. May we at Southridge Community Church, this church tucked away in Clinton, New Jersey, may we be people who have faithful endurance. May we worship in humility. May we have confidence in the victory of the one who's the first and the last. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, make us deep worshipers of you. Thank you for the good gifts that you give us. We, we, we gratefully receive them. Thank you so much. But God, may the greatest gift that we receive be the gift of your presence and the gift of your person. May we look forward to the victory that you will one day have because you are the first and the last. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. We would love to pray with you. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. May God's blessing be with you, and may you have a great day.